Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, you don't know me very well, perhaps, because I'm uh, mostly over on the west side, and unfortunately, I don't get a lot of chance to travel over here. So I, uh, I'm kind of like this uh, relative that you see on holidays, you know? He's a nice guy, but we just don't know him that well, and uh, so... You see me on Christmas and Easter and uh, occasionally. There's a few of you I've gotten to know through Porterbrook and some classes, things like that. But uh, it's good to be over here and hang out on a day other than Christmas or Easter. So it is a holiday, though, isn't it? So that's kind of weird that Tim had me over here on a holiday. I am like the holiday uncle or something. So um, my, uh, my daughter woke up this morning as I was getting ready to head out the door. I'm usually out the door before my family's up and, you know, it's Father's Day and she's She's up early all the time. It's ridiculous. And so she gets up and she gives me a hug and says, Happy Father's Day, Dad. And, you know, it's all cute and good and everything. She said, Are you preaching today? And I said, Yeah. She's like, Good. I'm like, What does it matter to you? You're in the class. You know, you don't care. She's like, Well, you preach longer than Pastor Tim, so I get more time in the class with our teacher. <laughs> and so I thought about that. And first of all, I am very, very suspicious about her concept of time. Um, because I'm not sure I preached longer than Tim. I'm going to give it a run this morning, perhaps, but I'm not sure about that. And uh, secondly, it's just cute. Uh, kids are cute, aren't they? You saw the video. A little scary to have your kids answering questions that you didn't know about, though. Um, my kids apparently think I'm addicted to Oreos from the video we played over on the west side earlier. And they're right, so um, they know me. Um, so, <laughs> all right. Um, do you guys ever play the telephone game? Anybody ever do that, telephone game? Remember that in youth groups or school or something like that? You start the whisper on one side of the room, and you're like, okay, you only get one chance to share it with a neighbor, and then it goes around, and we find out what it says. So I, I say a sentence over on one side, and it's supposed to travel to the other side, and we see what we have at the end. And it never comes up anything remotely similar, right? Uh, we actually did this on the west side this morning, and I said something ridiculous like the purple flamingo flies to Mars on the third Tuesday of the month. And they got it close. I think they were trying to ruin my illustration. But they forgot about the Mars part. They forgot about the month part. It was, uh, it was a little messy. And so, it, you know, it, 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 there, it took on a life of its own as it transported around the room. So if I was to start something, something like just off the top of my head, and this is in, entirely off the top of my head. So if I was just to say Tom Izzo is the greatest basketball coach ever over here, by the time it got over to the front with Chris, it would be entirely something different, wouldn't it, Chris? Like, it would be entirely different. Yeah, like, and Chris would just say something... Chris and I have a lot of fun about Michigan State athletics. I'm a big Michigan State fan. He, like many of you, is a big Badgers fan. So, but you guys get the deal. I would, I would say one thing over here, whether it was, you know, whatever it might be. And it could just be something ridiculous. And it would change and morph because it was just a quick relay rather than an extended, repetitious pattern of learning. The reason that you know 2 plus 2, the reason that you know E comes after D is because your teachers and your parents and others drilled that into your head repeatedly. Sometimes painfully. Sometimes for some of you, it, those math facts took a little bit more work for some of us to learn, didn't they? See, the danger of the telephone game is that what you sought out to produce at the front end rarely comes out the same in the conclusion. It's different. And I want you to keep that in mind as we talk through 
the Holy Spirit's work in global missions. Now that sounds like a doctoral dissertation more than a sermon, so bear with me for a moment as we talk about global missions of the church and the Holy Spirit's work. We've been in a series on the Holy Spirit. Tim has been teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Who is he and what does he do? A lot of us hear the Holy Spirit and we're like, I think it's good. And we usually say it rather than he because we think of it as a force-like phenomenon rather than a person. So we say, I think it's good, but I'm not really sure what he does. Like, he's kind of encouraging most of the time and uh, supporting maybe, and uh, he kind of fires you up, right? Uh, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so we've been kind of putting some definition around who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. Last week, Tim spent a great deal of time talking about the work of the Spirit in our salvation, in bringing us from death to life, in taking dead men and women who are, who are spiritually dead, opposed to God, and raising them to new life. It is the Spirit who applies the work of God and seals us for the day of redemption, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit takes the work of God in Christ and applies it to our life, softening our hearts, taking off these spiritual blinders that we have on, and awakens us to the glory of the gospel. That's what the Spirit does in our salvation. And so Tim spent a great deal of time last week talking about that, that, that small, individual work of the Spirit in your heart, in my heart. What has God done? How has the Spirit worked in our lives? And this week, I'm going to kind of expand on that a bit. I'm going to talk about the global work of the Holy Spirit. And in order for us to do that, I've got to take you through a journey, uh, take you on a journey through the Bible. Okay, so get your uh, seatbelts buckled. And we're going we're gonna to drive through just briefly here. Well, actually, not briefly. I'm lying there. Uh, we're going to drive through relatively quickly. Safer way to say it, isn't it? Maybe? Okay. Gives me a little bit of leeway there then. If I say briefly, you're going to hold me to it. So, first thing. When we understand the, the, the themes of Scripture, we understand the storyline of Scripture, the, scri the Scriptures are not just a bunch of good advice randomly collected into a book of Proverbs or a book of uh, little hints on life. The Scriptures are a story. The Bible tells one big story of the redemptive purposes of God in Christ Jesus. God in Christ is rescuing and renewing sinful, rebellious peoples for, for his glory. And that's the big picture of the story of the Bible. And the first thing we need to understand is that God himself is a missionary God. When we talk about global missions, we usually think about missionaries and we think of the Indiana Jones type person who's going off into the jungles with a machete and a Bible to find people who need to hear about Jesus. That's our, our popular imagery of missions. And there are those who, thank God, are going to those who are unreached and who do not know about Jesus. Usually you don't need a machete anymore, you just need an internet connection. But there's a, a lot of work that's being done to connect with people who do not know the news of Jesus. And so missionaries are heading out right now, as, even as we speak, going into the world. I have friends who are going uh, to, to, to Uganda, I have friends who are going to France to proclaim the news of Jesus' salvation. But God himself is a missionary God. God is in the process of spreading and sharing the good news of salvation found only in his Son. And the goal of God's proclamation of the good news, the goal is for his own glory. God is in the process of glorifying himself as many cultures and many ethnicities and many diverse peoples from across the globe repent of sin and believe in the Spirit. 
God is glorified by missionary activity. God is a missionary God who is proclaiming the good news of his glory and his salvation in Christ Jesus. The goal of all of human history is the glory of God. And God is making that news known to the nations and to you and I. God, through the Spirit, is opening blind eyes to the glory of the gospel. Okay? Tim talked about that quite a bit last week. So God is a missionary God. Now, missions started at the beginning of your Bible. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 28, probably still on the first page of your Bible, maybe the second if you've got the big print thing, because like me, you can't see very good anymore. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, here's what God says to his creative order. God creates the earth. He creates the mountains and the seas. He creates the birds and the fish and the animals. And then he creates the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. And he says to them in, in, uh, in verse 128, God blessed the man and the woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives a commission, God gives a role, God gives a plan of what the first man, the first woman, our first parents, Adam and Eve, are to do. They are to rule as God's image bearers, made in God's image. They are to rule over the earth, and they are to fill it and multiply and be fruitful. Their calling is a missionary calling. Their multiplication is missional. Adam and Eve are spreading an awareness of God and his glory. They are to spread an awareness of God and his glory throughout the created order. So God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and says, fill this earth with a knowledge of my glory. Rule over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and let me be glorified through your activity. Now, as the storyline goes, Adam and Eve say, we want to live for our own glory rather than your glory, and they rebel against God, and the world comes under this curse. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and their work becomes toil. Death enters the picture. But God is merciful. God, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, if you want to flip over a few pages, chooses one man, Abraham, and says to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah, who are advanced in years and beyond the age of childbearing, God says to them, I will make of you a great nation, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So the father of God's chosen people, the Israelites, Abraham, here is given this blessing and given this call from God. And God says, I am going to choose you. I'm going to call you out of all the nations. I'm going to make you great for a reason. What is that reason? Okay, you're using my language. What's the Bible's language around this? To be a blessing. God is going to bless Abraham and his offspring so that they can be a blessing to the nations. The reason God chooses Israel is so that they can bless the nations. So they can be a light to the nations. And the last part of that verse says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says his plan is to select Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And somehow in this process he is going to bless all the families, all the nations of the earth. 
through Abraham's offspring. God's plan is an expanding plan. He's starting small, starting in an improbable location with Abraham, this elderly man, and his wife who is barren. And God's plan is an expanding that through Abraham's offspring, the nations shall be blessed. In Habakkuk, we're told that the end result is that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so from the call of Abraham, God's intention in the Old Testament is to bless the nations. The nation of Israel was called out by God to show his mercy and glory to the nations. It's God's display piece of glory, mercy, love. Israel was to be a missionary community to the nations, a light to the nations, an instrument of God's glory. And at times, the nation of Israel fulfilled this. You see this in Solomon's temple, when the temple was built, this glorious, beautiful building where the presence of God descended upon. And people from all over the world gathered to Jerusalem to see God's glory. Israel was fulfilling what God had called it to. But like Adam and Eve, the nation of Israel rebelled, missed things, and God judged them and sent them into exile. But even in exile, God's purposes were prevailing. God would bless the nations through Abraham's offspring, but it wasn't a a group of people, the nation of Israel. It was centered on one person who would come from the line of Abraham, one person, God himself, who would take on flesh and be born of Abraham's descendant. This was Jesus. And so we see in the storyline of Scripture that God is intending to display his glory and make his name known to the nations, and we find in the New Testament, as the Gospels open up, with this, Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is how God is going to make his name known, how God will affect his salvation. Jesus is the Messiah King that Israel has been waiting for. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. He comes, and by his servant service, particularly his death and resurrection, Jesus sets up his right to reign, and he sets up his rule over the nations. And as Jesus leaves this earth and heads back to the right hand of the Father, Jesus commissions his disciples and says to them in Matthew chapter 28, you have the responsibility of taking this news out to the nations. So take your Bibles once more and flip forward. We're jumping forward astronomically here. Matthew chapter 28, a rather famous passage, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. You guys got it? Matthew chapter 28. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Jesus had died, and he was resurrected, so this is a natural response. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. Go, therefore, and not just make disciples of your neighbor or your family members. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives this commission to the disciples to make disciples of the nations. And so Jesus calls the, uh, the, the, those who had followed him and says, go and make more disciples. Go and share the good news of who I am and what I have done on the cross and through the resurrection. Jesus calls his disciples to go, go, go and make disciples. 
Now, how that is done is, is, is listed here in a couple ways. First of all, Jesus calls, people to make, calls his followers to make disciples by baptizing people. Baptism means that you are united to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's a symbol of what has happened in salvation, of how in Christ you have died to sin, and in Christ you have risen again to new life. And so God, uh, Jesus calls the disciples to baptize these new followers, uniting them, showing their uni- unity to Christ. And baptism also connects us to a wider community. It connects us to the church. And so as Jesus calls his disciples to go make disciples, baptizing them, he's calling them to evangelism, and he's calling them to church planning. He's calling them to tell about Jesus and make known the work of Jesus, and he's calling them to form congregations and churches and make churches, plant churches. So Jesus commissions his disciples and tells them to baptize others. But he also tells them one more thing. Do you see it there? What else does he tell them to do? What is it? Teach them. Teach them to obey. Jesus calls his disciples to go, make disciples, baptize them, which is the work of evangelism and church planting, but he also tells them to teach the nations. Go to all the nations and teach them to obey. There's this process of discipleship and training that Jesus calls his church to embark on. And the two, evangelism and discipleship and training, are critically linked, but often in our plans, disconnected. So let me give you some numbers here. How many of you like numbers? All right, I shouldn't put my hand up. I can't stand numbers. Some of you do, and this might be helpful for you. Every year in the, in, in, on the globe, every year, listen to this, 50,000 new churches open their doors. Every year on this planet, 50,000 churches open their doors. Every day, 174,000 people become Christians. 174,000, that's exciting, isn't it? It's phenomenal. And most of that's happening in Africa and in Asia, and there's a great movement of the Spirit to see people converted and see churches planted. Great things are happening. It's phenomenal and exciting. We are, the church, we are baptizing and making disciples. We're going, and the the news is is, is reaching the ends of the earth. But, Let's think about what Jesus said. He also said, teach them. Now, what happens if we don't teach them to obey like Jesus commanded? What might happen? Do you remember our telephone game? Where I would say one thing to one side of the room, and it would kind of get passed on. And then once it got to Chris, it would be completely different. Not because of who Chris is, because he's bright, you know. But it would be different because... No, there's no reinforcement. There's no teaching, right? There's no instruction around that. There's no repetition. There's, no, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing grounding you in that truth that I would say to this side of the room. Now, this is largely what's happening in global missions right now, is the good news of Jesus is being proclaimed. People are going out into the nations and saying, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And people are hearing that, repenting of sin, believing in the gospel, and being saved by the Spirit of God. It is an amazing work of the Spirit in places like India to hear the numbers of how many thousands of people are being converted every day. But if there is no teaching, and Jesus makes it a point to tell us to teach the nations, if there is no teaching, here's what's going to happen. Sociologists and theologians will use a term called syncretism. 
Syncretism means fusing two unlike things, essentially. And it happens throughout the storyline of the Bible to God's people. In the Old Testament, syncretism happened when the people of God, rather than just worshiping God alone like they were supposed to, brought in idol worship from the nations, brought in worship of Baal or Ashtoreth or other idols of that day in Canaan, fertility rituals and all sorts of uh, uh, other rituals. And it tried to fuse and do a little bit of both. Yes, we'll worship Yahweh, the God of our fathers, but we're also going to adopt this local fertility God. It was syncretism. In the New Testament, it happened when the Corinthian church would kind of bring in the, the immorality, the practices of the Corinthian city and fuse that or attempt to fuse that to their worship of Jesus. The Galatians tried to fuse a new Judaism where you had to obey the rules of the Old Testament in order to be saved. The Colossians had their syncretism and their heresy. And largely, Paul, in the New Testament letters, is instructing the churches and teaching them to obey. Paul is obeying that latter command of the Great Commission in his letters. He's teaching them. Now, in the U.S., modern, do you think we have syncretism here? Yeah. I mean, there's a God called consumerism in our culture where we are what we can gather and consume. And we have adopted that in the church and we have said, yes, it's about Jesus, but we're also going to add this. Or the idolization of self. I'm great. I'm the center of God's plan. I'm the center of my universe. And we worship ourselves alongside Jesus. In the modern church, globally, syncretism is rampant. In Nigeria, large churches are known to sacrifice cows as a way to attract and sway crowds. Churches in Haiti, I've been there a few times the last few years. In Haiti, a combination of evangelical Christianity and voodoo exists where it tries to put God and the gods at our disposal to be manipulated for our purposes. The prosperity gospel in Africa and South America means that pastors are fleecing already impoverished people, saying, give and you'll be rich. It's, it's syncretism, it's heresy. David Sills, a professor of missions at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, says this, every year, and this is for you numbers, folks, every year 10,000 house churches in China are lost to cults. Why? It's not because there's no evangelism. It's because there's no teaching. We're not grounding people in the faith, helping them to understand this is the truth of what the Bible says. Jesus calls us to go and make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey. And here's the gap. There are 2.2 million evangelical churches in the world. It's a lot. 2.2 million evangelical churches in the world. 85%, 85% are led by pastors with no training. 85% of the world's churches are led by pastors with no training. That means that these pastors don't know how to read and interpret their Bibles. The pastors don't know, how the, don't know the fundamentals of the Christian faith and the story of Christian, Christian history. They don't know the errors of the past. And if you don't study the errors of the past, you're what? Doomed to repeat them. And so we see churches with the same errant theology that was present in the church a thousand years ago. Outside, in the U.S. alone, in the U.S., there is one formally trained pastor for every 230 church members. So there's, you know, at DR, there was about 230 people here today, probably. There's 
on average, one formally trained pastor. Now, that we're a little bit above average, so we're pulling the bar up there, so that's good, I guess. Um, and, you know, Tim has been, uh, has been, had the opportunity to receive great training. I've had the opportunity to receive great training. And even on, 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 for those of you that aren't pastoral staff, there's an opportunity for theological education where you ground yourself in right thinking and understand how to study the Bible. And for those of you who have been through Porterbrook, you've been part of that process. For those of you who have attended other classes, there's great educational opportunities in our church. And so we're training and educating people quite well here in the U.S. Of course we could do better, but we're doing all right. In the U.S., there is one formally trained pastor for every 230 church members. Outside the United States, there is one trained pastor for, however, how, for every, guess how many church members? Anybody want to take a stab? 10,000? 450,000. In the U.S., there is one formally trained pastor for every 230 Christians. Outside the U.S., it's one to every 450,000. There is an estimated 5 million pastors in the world with no access to any kind of formal biblical training. And here's what that means. That means we, as the church, are failing to do what Jesus commanded us to do, teaching. We're missing that. Paul instructs Timothy, says this to him in 2 Timothy 2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, I've invested my life in you. I've taught and trained you, Timothy. Go find men in your church. Go find leaders in your church and teach and train them also. And continue that. And the, we have not done that as a church on a global scale. Now, let me connect this to the Holy Spirit. I guess we didn't put a Holy Spirit graphic up there. We did earlier. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Turn over there. Just a few pages to your right. Jesus is talking to his disciples shortly before his ascension back to the Father. And he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, many of you have heard this verse. And you've heard it talk about the global work of the church and how we're supposed to be witnesses in our Jerusalem. And our Jerusalem here is, and for you guys, is the east side of Madison in particular, but Madison is our Jerusalem. We're to plant churches and make disciples in Jerusalem, Jesus says. But it's also regionally, Judea and Samaria. We're to think regionally. How are we planting churches? How are we training others regionally in our Judea and Samaria? For, that might, for us, that might be Dane County. It might be southern Wisconsin. But then Jesus says, and to the ends of the earth. Globally, we are to be thinking globally. We are sent globally as a church. How are we training? How are we going? How are we making disciples? How are we baptizing? And how are we teaching others? But did you see the first part of this verse? Because it's critically important. Jesus does not just say, go, go in either Matthew 28 or in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says something critical here. He says, you will receive power, how? Spirit's going to come on you. The Spirit of God empowers the church of God to take the, the gospel to the nations. It is our work, we do work, but it is empowered not just by our own efforts, but by the Spirit of God who works through our proclamation, who works through our preaching, who works through our evangelism, whether that's on a Jerusalem site or whether that's on a site in the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God 
is connecting our little church to this national massive work of salvation. God is on the move in the world. Thousands of people will get saved today. And we're called to be connected to that, taking the gospel, using our resources for the glory of God and the benefit of the nations. The Spirit empowers the church for local, regional, national, and global mission. And so let me talk a little bit about what DR is planning on doing. When it comes to global mission, Damascus Road is seeking to make disciples and plant churches, just like that's part of our mission statement here, and to serve those who, uh, who are marginalized and poor. We want to do that. We want to send people. We want to see our people go to the nations and serve the nations and teach the nations and engage with the nations. But let me think, let's think about this for a second. If you want to reach um, Swedes in Sweden, okay, not you Swedes who are here in Madison. If you want to reach real Swedes, uh, that probably offended you, right? If you want to switch, reach the Swedes who are in Sweden, I could, you, you know, I could like pick one of you and give you a little bit of training and then like punt you over to Stockholm and you could go there trying to reach Swedes. But what would happen if we could connect with 10 Swedish church leaders and train them in the gospel and then say, you know the language, you know the culture, you know the geography, go and make disciples. Which one do you think is going to be more effective? Another softball question right there. I tend to ask easy questions sometimes because I like affirmation. But if you want to reach Swedes, you train up Swedes. If you want to reach Iranians, you train up Iranians. If you want to reach Ugandans for Jesus, you train up Ugandan church leaders. So in January of this year, uh, a friend from DR West and I went to Athens, Greece, a really difficult area of the world to go on a missions trip. It was uh, brutal and not really, actually. It was pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> That was, that was my version of joking. You guys got to get used to that. Um, I was in Athens, Greece. Athens is a, a choke point for migration into Europe. If you want to move to Germany from North Africa, if you want to flee persecution in Syria and move to uh, Sweden or to London, you have to go through Athens. It's the way the European Union is essentially working. And so 20% of the city of Athens is filled with migrants. It means there's a million migrants, from, largely from North Africa and the Middle East, in Athens. Evangelism in this context is happening as missionaries and nationals are proclaiming the gospel. Church planting is happening, but leaders need to be trained. And so my friend Reed and I went to Athens, and he taught a class that was translated into Arabic. I taught a class that was translated into Farsi, and I was able to teach 30 Iranian pastors the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark, if you were here with us last year, asked this question, who is Jesus, and answers it by saying, this is the Son of God. And so I was able to instruct and train 30 Iranian nationals who will leave Athens and go to places like Copenhagen or Oslo and plant churches and reach Iranians in Europe. It's an amazing, exciting opportunity because that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. It's not easy to do. So I was in Athens for a week and was able to do that. And as we came back, God began to stir in my life a little bit more about the gifting that he has given me, the passion that he has given me, the understanding of the nations that he has, uh, that he has kind of stirred in my heart and said, Josh, this might be what you need to do more than a week every once in a while. And so in October of this year, I will be in Togo, West Africa, training West African church leaders in the gospel. That's pretty exciting. We'll be up from all over West Africa, and we'll be training them for two weeks this time. And then next year, 
I will be working for an organization called Training Leaders International, full-time, going to the nations. I'll be leading teams of pastors, seminary students, and other people to train, to teach uh, in places like India, in places like Athens, in places like West Africa and South America. And as Training Leaders International looks at the globe, we're rapidly expanding where we go to teach. Many of those places are enclosed countries where you can't go as an evangelist or as a missionary, but you can go for a week, connect with church leaders, train them in the gospel, and obey that latter part of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey. So my role is changing. My role, DR, will be a big part in sending me financially and prayerfully, and uh, we really covet your prayers. My wife, Marianne, and my four kids, this is a massive change for us. I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I'm entering the world of teaching and education internationally. And so you can be praying for me and for my family and our adjustment. This will involve a move next summer to Minneapolis, Lord willing. And, um, and we're planning on, on doing that so we can be near the headquarters of Training Leaders International and connect with the ministry uh, from a firsthand basis there. My role, my job, will essentially be to lead teams about five times a year to different places around the globe and teach Nationals, train nationals. I'll be, in the meantime, I'll be writing curriculum for these classes and recruiting other pastors, other seminary students, and other teachers to go to the nations and teach them. Damascus Road will be sending me to train leaders among the nations so that churches can be more effective and faithful, and we believe that this will have a global impact. DR also will hopefully see short-termers go to the nations for evangelism, for church planting, for relief work, for work among the poor, for leadership development. And we want to be connected to this worldwide move of the Spirit as we send people to the nations. And DR will pray for the Holy Spirit to move among the nations. Let me say this. This is one thing you guys can do as you think about the Spirit's work among the nations around the world. Is There's a book, I think it's like on its 14th edition because they update it regularly. It needs to be updated regularly. It's a book called Operation World. Anybody ever heard of that book? A few of you have. Uh, you, grab a copy of that if you can. It's, it's a thick book, but it's, um, it's, it's relatively cheap on Amazon. And you can actually go to the website if you just Google Operation World. I think they essentially do all of their content online for free. So uh, if you want that, you can use that. And Operation World just kind of looks at each country in the world and says, here's the, the, the basic demographic stats on the country, and here's what you need to know about the country, and here's what's happening, here's what God is doing in this country, and here's the difficulties that are being faced by the church. And so as I'm looking to that trip to Togo in October, I'm looking at Togo and finding out here's what the church's history there is, and here's what the church's difficulties are, and learning a bunch. And if you want to pray for the nations, using a resource like Operation World is a great, great opportunity, and it helps you in your geography, because you'll read through that thing and say, Togo? That's really a place? You're going to go to Togo? That sounds goofy. But it is, and God is at work there. So pray for me as I go. Pray for the church in Togo as I connect with them. Pray for Damascus Road as we think globally, regionally, and locally. We want to see the Spirit of God move in this congregation. We want to see the Spirit of God move among our churches here and in, in, in Verona. And we want to see the Spirit of God move in church planting efforts regionally. And we want to see the Spirit of God move in the world and be connected to that. The story of God, the story of God's salvation is not centered around you. 
exclusively. The story of God's salvation is not centered around our church. The story of God's salvation is God bringing people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation underneath the authority and reign of King Jesus so that God is glorified. And my role as it shifts here at DR and as it shifts towards Training Leaders International will be to slot into that piece of the Great Commission, teaching them, teaching them. I love to teach, love to teach. It's my favorite thing in the world. I like to teach five-year-olds how to play baseball, and I like to teach Iranian pastors how to communicate the gospel of Mark. And so I'm excited about what God is doing. A couple quick things, and then I'll be done. Uh, back on the table, as well as I'll have some up front here, there's a picture of our family with a little demographic, or just the details of our information. If you want to pick up one of those, put it on your fridge, pray for us. We would really, really appreciate that. We, we need prayer, desperately. So grab one of those, put it on your fridge or your dartboard or wherever, and, uh, and pray for us. And then there are these little brochures that basically explain the organization that I'll be working with, Training Leaders International. It gives you some, some of the stats and directs you to the website. It gives you some just basic information about what I'll be connected to and what I'll be seeking to connect Damascus Road and other churches in this area to as we go to teach and train the nations. And then on the back curved little table back there, what do you call that thing, a communication table, whatever it is, there's a way for you to sign up for our mailing list so that we can kind of regularly update you and tell you, hey, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing, pray for us in this way, and uh, if you want to be connected to that, we'd love to have you just fill out that information and uh, you'll, uh, you'll start seeing stuff uh, in the next few weeks. So, We love you guys, we're excited about Damascus Road, God's got good stuff in store here and God's got good stuff in store for the nation. So let me pray. We're going to invite the band back up here. We're going to celebrate the work of God in our own lives and in connecting us to this global movement of the Spirit. And as we do that, we respond in numerous ways. We respond with song. We respond with prayer. We respond by coming forward. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, coming forward and taking communion, remembering his death and resurrection. And if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, come forward during the next song and receive that and remember him. So let me pray, and then we'll continue our worship. God, we are so thankful that you have not just called us to do something on our own power, because we are weak. We are, we are incapable of obeying you. But your Spirit empowers the people of God, the church of God, for the mission of God. And as we connect to that, we want to see the nation's rejoice in the gospel. We want to see people from Iran and people from Togo and people from Brazil, from Japan, Mongolia, Uganda, all over the globe. We want to see people of many tribes and tongues and nations gathering to worship you because one day that's where we'll be among a great heavenly throng of people who are lifting high the lamb and thanking God for his blood. You are a great, glorious God, and we thank you for the great, glorious work that you do. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.